This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with player to coach lead for the English FA, Steve Guinan. Within his role, he focuses on getting international players from the English national team into coaching, supporting them in their transition away from playing. Steve has been able to help create a curriculum and course to aid them in this transition. He also discusses the trials and tribulations they have along the way and how they can use some of their playing experiences in a coaching and managerial context. I hope you enjoy. Okay, so first of all, Steve, I really appreciate you taking a bit of time to jump on. Um, how are you and how are, how are things at the moment? Things are okay. More importantly, I'm healthy, the family's healthy. Um, you know, challenging times for everyone, not just involved in football, sport, but obviously the general population. So um, that's all you can expect for. We're healthy, we're happy. Um, it's not easy to, to be working from home and you've got everyone trying to connect to the Wi-Fi and we, we're having daily battles in our house but things are okay yeah no problem perfect and in terms of kind of your role at the moment do you just want to talk through people uh, with people kind of what your role entails and obviously I appreciate it. it's pretty challenging for you at the moment in terms of the support that you can provide no sure so uh, my it's quite a lengthy title uh I'm the player to coach lead at the football association which Basically, what, what I am tasked with doing is playing the, the, the lead role in the strategy from professional players who transition into coaching um, and really with a focus on helping them achieve their target, which gen generally is the target of trying to get to the top end of the game. So sort of elite status. So you're looking at Premier League championship managers who want to go, you know, potentially you know to go and coach and manage in Europe so I sort of design and develop a program and work with those players transitioning and it's more really about people development it's not just coach development it's trying to encourage and enthuse them to stay in the game which they've, they've shown a will and desire to do but then try and you know capture all that knowledge and experience they've got from playing uh, and try and help them then deliver it on the other side of the white line from a coach and a manager's perspective which which can be challenging. So in terms of a, a programme or a course or support that you provide, what would that look like um, for those players obviously looking to go into the coaching side of the game? Um, oh, that's, that's a difficult question because it, it, I've got it, it's a very lengthy answer. Um, well, 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 to be clear, the players have to do the normal uh, pathway, the coaching pathway. There's no getting away from that. So this year, the entry point for professional football players has changed. So they can now enter the journey at UEFA B rather than what it used to be, the, the, the old fashioned level two, which is also changing to UEFA C. So the players from, from this month can en enter at UEFA B. They have to do the normal pathway as everyone else does UEFA B, UEFA A, pro license if they get to that stage. Um, and in between those qualifications sandwiched in there is, is my development program, um, which is purely really now with a focus on international players. So those players that are either current, uh, currently representing England or, or former international players that have represented England. And we've sort of, um, over the last 12 months, which, which I've 
spent a large part of my first few months with the FA investigating other sports, other organisations, other national governing bodies of what they were doing in this space, really, what they were doing to help former athletes transition into coaches and, and potentially world-class uh, managers. So I went around a whole host of places and, and spoke to a number of different people who, who were at various uh moments along that coaching pathway so some people who were actually still playing who, who thought that they may want to become a coach and a manager so what did they perceive they would get out of the journey some who were halfway through it so what have they enjoyed so far what have they found impactful what do they think's missing from the coach education provision and those who are either you know in position of, of head coaches and those who are you know international managers and have had years in the game well, what did they not get from the qualifications? What did they miss? What did they think needs to be changed? And as a result of that, I was able to, to pretty much build a program um, that would help encapsulate that, to be honest with you. And we, we sort of came up with four distinct areas. So the first area was really about themselves, increasing self-awareness. The second area was, I've actually got it wrote down here, so I've got it, you know, succinct is, is, is on the grass. So as you can imagine, sort of technically, tactically trying to build up on that experience and get them to learn from other people. Um, thirdly was gain a wider understanding of football performance. So in the club, you know, managing other departments, managing up, et cetera, learning to work with a sporting director. And the fourth category really was how to have longevity in the game. So I think it's widely known that some of the stats of managers and coaches who were, you know, leave the role pretty early, they don't get another opportunity. So how can we help them stay in the game? Because what we're very keen on doing with the FA is if we've got these former and current international players that have got a wealth of experience and knowledge, well, how can we polish those individuals to, to make sure that they can stay in the game in some capacity? And we're not naive enough to think that they're always going to have head coach and manager's role. Some won't, some won't even get the opportunity. Some may go into other roles such as performance, S&C, sporting directors, scouting and recruitment, but we want to keep those people in the game. So um, what can we do to help them stay there for a long period of time? So in terms of um, increasing like self-awareness and stuff, what type of process have you put in place to help people with that? Um, it's really interesting. So what we've tried to do at the moment is initially um to try and formalize that is actually to run a 360 so try and get something concrete on paper so what we've done with some individuals is is we've set up a a, a relationship with a, with a third party who has actually delivered and, and executed a 360 on our behalf so if your coach x at a particular football club what we've tried to do is glean information from their line manager so it could be at the moment uh, it could be the head of coaching, could be academy manager, it could be the first team manager. So what actually do they perceive their strengths and weaknesses are within the coaching and, and leadership and management space? So they've um, completed a 360 on their behalf. The, the individuals, the coaches have about their perceptions. And also off the back of that, we've got some of their peers to do that. So people they will work with on a daily basis. So if you're a coach, it may be your assistant coach. It may be your head of performance, it may be the head of the S&C department, etc. And then we've tried to get some, some 
team members to do that so you know effectively it may be the players that you're actually coaching so what do you actually think about the coach you know good and bad indifferent we're getting a whole host of information come back and you know as a result of building up our relationships because you know as you can imagine there are, there's some point on that qualification pathway whether i'm supporting them whether it's the coach developers that are supporting them whether it's pfa members um, and pfa staff that are helping support them we try to gather information from a wide variety of sources so we've actually got something concrete now that we can go off um, and start to build a program that would would be tailored to the individual needs so what we're trying to do is not a one-size-fits-all you know that they're going to get that on the coaching journey and our program is specifically developed um and matched up to what their to what their 360 may tell us so to give you an example about the the, the increase in the self-awareness well quite early on and i should imagine you were the same we've all got an idea of how we may want to play the game well actually i'd go into a club i'd, I'd like to play this formation because i've got a load of experience of it but is that the right formation that you'd want to play have you got the players to do that what would your first meeting be like with the players how would you articulate your playing philosophy and your values and beliefs and when you start to get into the nitty-gritty and, and you know delve a little bit deeper under the surface a lot of people quite early on in that transition haven't really thought too much about it so we try and help them um to do that to, to one of a better phrase how to execute their vision we try to help them with some leadership well if you're going to take over as a head coach or a manager or even be the lead coach you know you may you may go into your first coaching role as the under 16 coach the under 18 coach well what does that actually look like when you're actually having team talks you're having to drop players you're having to move players up you're actually putting sessions on on the grass on a daily basis and you've actually got a leader group of players and staff you know some people haven't got a great deal of experience of that it may be having difficult conversations i can remember i know we just caught up very briefly in some of my earlier coaching roles i used to hate dropping players whether that's grassroots whether it's universities whether that's first team you know senior end of the game having those conversations and i've, I've been through that journey myself as a player they're they're really difficult so have you got any strategies to learn with that when the player comes back at you when you can tell that the player is absolutely crestfallen but you may have to then pick him the following week or how delicate are those those nuances of that conversation you're going to have it may be understanding your emotions i can remember how how i used to get caught up in the heat of a battle on the side of the pitch and i'd rant and rave in my earlier days and i look back now and think well, what are you doing so you know how do you understand what gets your emotions uh, going what gets you to have some impact that actually taking a step back and understanding some behavioral strategies may actually help you as a, as a leader and a manager because i think what you exhibit on the side of the pitch quite often the players replicate that and i look quite often at you know diego simeone at atletico madrid his players are almost you know mirror image what he executes on the side of the pitch so you look at Klopp and the way that he's so animated on the side of the pitch and I'm not saying his players do the same and you look at some of the more reserved managers you know there's no right or no wrong but what we try and give them an idea and a perspective of that what actually are they do you know what you are um so we try and develop them over a period of time really to to increase all of those I, I, not just all of those in isolation but a number of areas to try and increase the self-awareness and is have you found it um interesting in terms of the challenge that will present to coaches or players that want to become coaches because i imagine 
particularly if they've had an extensive career in the game, they probably have a perception about themselves or how they see themselves or think how they're viewed by others. Whereas if you're getting that 360 degree feedback, there might be some interesting discussion points um, that would pop up. Have you got any examples of where that's really challenged an individual about how they're perceived? Um, it is challenging, but, you know, I, I try and flip it on the head and, you know, I, I was quite lucky to play for 20 years and grind out a career kicking the bag of wind around and, uh, you know, I'm very thankful for that. But, you know, the, the types of coaches and players who, who that we're talking about, it's taken them years and years to to train and develop and to become that football player. Now, although they've played at the top end of the game, they're very, very naive in terms of coaching and management. You know, and I, it, it's taken them so long to become the high-level performer of what they have done on the pitch. But now they're starting from scratch again, they're starting from the bottom. So although I've, I've got all this fantastic playing experience in the head of potentially playing in, you know, World Cups, European Championships, playing against the best players in the world, actually thinking about the game from a coach and a manager, they're actually very naive. And although, and I, you know, I think about myself at that, as soon as I started to coach and manage it, I thought, oh, you know, this is a dollar line of the way I'd want to play, what I'd want to do. But, you know, there's a phrase I, I always use quite a lot. You, you actually don't know what you don't know until you're exposed to it. So, you know, slowly but surely, we don't want to embarrass or make these coaches or any coach for that matter feel uncomfortable. But until you start to work with them, expose them to areas within the game and they learn from the self through experience of, I don't know how to handle this situation. Uh, I, that This particular team or formation did this and I didn't know the way beyond it. I feel really uncomfortable in this scenario when I'm having this conversation. I've got no experience of it apart from a player's perspective. It's pretty clear that they'll actually welcome that feedback uh, and they'll accept it. And as much as you try and work with them, you can do that, but it's not an issue that's solved overnight. It's, it's a long journey. It's a long process. Um, but I always say, you know, work with him and I always refer back to it. You, you don't know what you don't know. And quite often people look at me quite absurdly and think, well, what the bloody hell are you on about? But it becomes clear pretty quickly that, and they do actually, you know, recognize the fact they're relatively early into that into that pathway i guess for you it's the importance of stating that it is a journey and although they're a kind of an elite performer in the playing side of the game you might have to go back a few steps in terms of your coaching's career to then hopefully be able to kind of go beyond what your playing career was yeah we, you know we, we talk about putting in the hard yards and you know putting your hours in on the grass and you know, there's a whole host of information out there and data and, you know, people talk about the 10,000 hour rule, et cetera. And although there's, there's quite a lot of negativity around that, I think there's, there's no experience for, for learning. And I look at a lot of the people now that are doing it um, and have done it. And, and I use Stephen Gerrard as a, as an example. And it, it would have perhaps been so easy for him to go in at the top end of the game and get a job in the Premier League or even the Championship. And he decided to, <coughs> so excuse me, to earn his strike for want of a better phrase you know with the under 18s and you know i look at that and i think well actually that's still jumping in at the deep end for me because you're not learning under 14s under 16s you, you're taking over liverpool under 18s which for some is their career goal but you know circumstances allow him to you know due to his profile and his, and his playing background but he did put a period of time in that no doubt helped develop him and to, to a lesser scale he wasn't in the spotlight he wasn't showcasing him himself and 
you've, you're out of the spotlight. You know, if you fail, if you make a substitution, if you get it wrong on a game day with the under 18s, it's not all about winning. It's not the three points is vital. You haven't got 50,000 fans clamoring for your neck. You haven't got social media going wild because you've done something wrong. So you've got to put the time in. There's no, there's no excuse for that. And we will always recommend and we're, you know, big advocates of, some players and coaches will still jump in at the deep end because the will and that's the nature of the beast and that will continue to happen. And there may be a success very early on, but ultimately they're going to face a situation and a scenario where they're going to become under pressure and they're going to fail. Now, when that opportunity arises and when that situation occurs, have they got the skills and the experience to actually fall back on? Well, I faced this opportunity in this moment before and I've got the, the expertise to deal with it. And we're trying to recommend that people do put in the hard yards behind the scenes and to be fair and to give people a lot of credit they are doing yeah i think it's an interesting uh point i look at american football for example and i think the uh the, the common kind of denominator over there is the, the coaches have got two head coaching jobs to get it right they normally yeah. if you get it wrong the first time people understand and you can go to an interview process um and kind of explain what went wrong in that situation and you'll get another opportunity but if it goes wrong twice that's when it then becomes quite challenging uh for a third team to take you now i appreciate obviously nfl there's only 32 teams whereas professional football there's, there's a lot more but i'd imagine it's probably similar at the top end if you start getting a track record of struggling or not being able to manage situations appropriately it then does become challenging for you so putting in those hard yards earlier on where maybe you can learn how to manage a challenging individual or have the difficult conversations you mentioned earlier hopefully allows you to buffer those negative experiences that are inevitably going to happen yeah i mean yeah you talk about the best managers in in the world at the moment Klopp, guardiola people like that who, who fortunately we've got managing in the premier league and you know, they get them done every week, don't they? They still lose games. And with all the experience they've got, they're still coming unstuck and they're still facing problems. So if you are if you jump in at that level, it's no surprise that you're going to fail. And there may be a period where you get success and it may be that you're actually, you've got the skills and the strategies to, to be able to, to make that extend for a long period of time. But I think, you know, the stats are out there and I, I work quite closely with the other stakeholders in the game, you know, in terms of first time coaches and managers that, that actually get those prominent positions within the 92 in the football league, approximately 60 to 70% of them never get another job. They fail first time round. Now in this game, there's, you know, every time there's a, a manager or a coach's job becomes up, you look at the people that are linked with it and I've actually forgotten half of them. God, I forgot he was out of work and he had a job previously. You know, it's, to get one of those 92 jobs, there's, you know, how many thousands of people are out there that want those jobs? And, you know, you, as you just alluded to, you're right, you may get the one job, you may get the second job, but at some point you've got to have longevity in the game and you have to have some form of success. Now, that's not necessarily winning a trophy or getting promoted. It may be just staying in a certain division. It may be, you know, you're facing a budget constraint. You've got ship a load of people out. You've got the balance of books. But at some point, you've got to be able to stay in the game. And um, unless you've got experience of that in some capacity, I think you, you are going to fail. And I had a recent conversation with Ian Hughes, former coach developer at um, the Welsh FA. One of the things he mentioned was he said that, um, kind of professional players almost have a degree 
in the playing side in terms of the experience they've had there. And it's about trying to transfer some of that knowledge then in obviously into the coaching side. For you, um, and you mentioned earlier about working on the tactical and technical side of the game, how do you go about challenging um, the individuals on those beliefs or the, on those ideas? Because like you said there, everyone would love to play like Pep or like Klopp at the moment, where, but it might be really, really challenging if you've got players that aren't able to play that way. So if you've got maybe two centre-backs that aren't as comfortable on the ball or you've got a striker who's a target man that maybe doesn't want to press like that. How do you go around challenging the players on those ideas and maybe looking at the way they want to play relative to the players that they can work with and, and whatnot? I haven't got a defined process, but I think a lot of players, including myself, tend to have or favour a certain formation idea they want to play the game a, a philosophy because they tend to have had success with it as a player now i think we'd all want to play the way pep plays you know the beautiful game shootoka is brilliant but you know quite often if the coaches that, that, that i'm working with at the moment if they're going to get a job it's not going to be at the top end it's not going to be at the very top where you've got the world's best players so quite often something's going to have to give because you know very early on it's quite clear that you may not have the personnel to play that that you want to play you know we all talk about playing out from the back and playing through the thirds and scoring a goal that everyone has a touch of the ball and it's 39 passes brilliant but there's more than one way to score a goal and you know I, I think Pep sometimes getting you know people do him a disservice and I can remember the goal if you can remember it few years ago I think it was the league cup final when I think it was Edison who pinged the ball direct off the deck from a goal kick Aguero just nudged the defender and lobbed it over the goalkeeper now that's one of a better phrase route one and people would say well that's a long ball but Man City do it and I know for a fact that they do coach it so as much as Pep does want to play the beautiful game he's not afraid of going back to front when he has to um I look, I look at Liverpool uh, you know the way that Klopp He's not afraid to turn the ball over back three, back five, whatever it could be. And the front three are constantly running behind and making penetrating runs. And, it, you know, when you're working with coaches and managers, they have got ideas the way they want to play the game. And it's just pretty evident that in certain ways they can. It's not to say they can't play out from the back, but then they play out from the back and it's, that's not in isolation. Then what are you going to do with it? Oh, I hadn't thought about that. But like, you know, how are you, how are you working at the top end of the pitch with your with your front three or your two or your front one for the one of players, how are you linking in the units? Hadn't thought about that bit. You know, everyone's got different aspects that they need to develop and become better with. Um, but it's like anything else. It, it, it's over a long period of time. Some people have the skills to manage working with a multidisciplinary team, taking into account all the physical data. Some people don't look at it at all. It, it, it's, it's a challenge, but, you know, slowly but surely it's just, baby steps you know it's, we're not going to solve everything overnight and I think it's it'd be churlish of us to think that we can do that but the players soon come around and I think for those that have, are in lead coach roles whether that's 14, 16, 18, 23, 13 football, footballers have that innate desire to want to win and I think if you lose a game even in the academy system in EPPP it's not about winning it's about development but for a footballer who's competed all his life that hurts and quite often, footballers are reflective. So whether that's in the journey, on the on the way home, in the car, on the minibus, on the coach, 
they're always asking me, why did I lose that? Could I have done better there in that area? Did I make the right substitution? Did I train the players the right way? Did we prepare for the opposition? And there's always room to develop even that, you know, the more highly polished individuals that are much further down the journey. So baby steps is probably all I can state that, you know, that's the way we try and help them. Have you seen any innovative ideas from people that you've kind of gone in to watch their session and they've done a rotation that was particularly stood out to you or had a particular philosopher, a particular philosophy of playing that stood out to you as different that kind of challenged you in some of your beliefs? Um, I'd like to say yes, but nothing, nothing particularly springs to mind. Um, you know, I, I think people are always looking for the for what makes the difference. Um, I think there's we, we have debate quite often about are coaches and managers following the trend, and I think a lot of them are. And things come round in circles, don't they? Um, everyone or a lot of teams at the moment favour a four three three. They want to play like Pep. Okay, great. Well, we can't all play like Pep, and we can't all play as well as him. So, if you're going to go up. A team that plays out from the back, a team that plays out the back, they they are they, they mirror each other in terms of formations. Fine, someone's going to come out on top at some point. But what is the difference, and how can you be the difference? So we had a conversation the other day on a on a different call about the three four three formation and how difficult it is to coach. Um, and I think that perhaps may be a result of actually people have got limited experience of that particular formation playing it i can't remember ever remember playing that formation i had 15 different clubs and probably 40 different managers so you know what is the difference you know you look at teams and those that have success and quite often they're doing something unique within the game um you know you look at the euros and the world cups of late and when iceland first came you know at the euros of the year well you know that that wasn't something new, unique in terms of they fell back into a shape. They played a low block and they counterattacked, but it was something that a England, but also other teams, struggled to break down. And then that they put so much energy and focus and effort into breaking them down in the final third that they actually forgot about the defending bit and got caught on the counterattack. So quite often it's you know recognizing you know the, the strengths and strengths of your your team, your players, your personnel. But how can you make a difference within that? So are you going to do something different? Are you going to play something totally unique? I think I can remember a coach probably about 12 months ago who, who played old-fashioned 4 4 2 for want of a better word. But what he used to do was just leave out a wide player who just cheated. And this individual had an awful lot of pace and skill, but let's say he didn't particularly contribute out of possession. Um, so... The coach recognised this and said, well, actually, don't bother. Because, you, yeah, it was quite funny, actually. You're a waste of space, so don't bother. But you're one of the best players on the team when you get the ball. So just hug the touchline. And it was quite a challenging process for a period of weeks because he had to get the other 10 players to buy into this fact and work particularly hard for this individual. And don't get me wrong, this individual then had to perform when he had the ball. But it caused massive problems for the opposition and the opponents because they didn't know how to handle it. Because most teams tend to defend with a plus one uh, in their favour. So they tend to have an overload. So in a 4 4 2, you know, three defenders up against the two strikers. But this player would just roam anywhere. So it wasn't particularly the right back that would pick him up. It wouldn't be the holding midfielder. It wouldn't be the left back. 
it just caused massive problems. And this team had a had a large amount of success for a good few months because teams just didn't know how to handle it. So, you know, I, I'm always looking for those unique mavericks, those people who've got that uh, ability to do something different to the norm, and that will get you a, some success, but only for a period of time because at the top end of the game, everyone's watching you inside out, have gains worth of analysis, and they'll fab in you out and find out a way to nullify you. But then my question would be, is what are you going to do next? So, uh, difficult one to question. I haven't seen too many unique people, to be honest. I think it's an interesting point because, like you mentioned there, at the top end of the game, the analysis is so in-depth and they can go into everything. I think once you get figured out, if you haven't evolved, then you're in real trouble. And um, I look at someone like Sheffield United, for example, had real success at the start of last season. Now, I love Sheffield United. I love Chris Wilder. I think the way that they've gone about the game is great. But I'd suggest that part of their struggles have probably been the first part of last season. Teams weren't sure what to expect, playing against a different formation with different challenges. They've probably got to the point now where um, teams have analysed it, maybe come up with a few patterns that they do and worked out ways to nullify those, which is now making them go in a different direction that maybe is presenting them with some, some challenges. But like you said there, I think the ability to evolve um, is a really, really important one. In terms of, um, for you, and having these players in, in the, kind of go from playing into the professional game, have you seen any common threads from those that have gone on to have success or those who have gone to progress really well in their coaching career? Uh, no, no, I haven't. You know, everyone's totally different. Um, and I think that's a good thing because we don't want to, we don't want to create robots either. We we want everyone to have their own personality and to to look at things differently, analyze the game differently. Um, I think probably if, if if there was anything, I think people like you know Frank Lampard, Stephen Gerrard, John Terry of late. You've now got a number of other young coaches and managers who who are coming through. I think they've got an insatiable desire to be the best. Um, and to give you an example of that, we're doing, you know, a number of stuff virtually like the whole world at the moment. And we, we, we're creating scenarios and situations where technical, tactical stuff, where people are delivering about teams online, they're analysing games, we're doing leadership interviews, we're having difficult conversations with actors to give you some examples of some stuff we're doing. And we're having some individuals who who, who are picking up the phone after and saying, I wasn't happy with that, really disappointed in my performance and how can I become better? I want to be the best version of me I can, so I need more from me. You know, when you think about normal course content, you know, this is a little bit different, but what can I do next? Who can you put me in contact with? I need more training. I've got to develop more in this area. And they've just got a hunger and a passion to be the best that they can be. And, you know, some of these guys and coaches and managers across all levels of the game are working ridiculous hours, lengthy weeks, um i've got a coach at the moment who's first team coach in the championship and never seems to be at home saturday tuesday saturday wednesday constantly in hotels traveling the length and breadth of the country but doesn't think twice about you know even in a hotel right let's have an hour together let's log on let's have a conversation i face this problem this issue in the club with this game we're thinking about this and they want to be the best versions they can be you know it's not always going to guarantee success. Of course it's not, because don't forget, you've got always someone else on the other side in the other dugout who's trying to do the same. But um, 
it's fascinating. They just want to be the best people they can be and to continuously learn. And I think someone used a, a sentence to me, the other word, epistemic curiosity. You know, they've got an insatiable desire to understand more about the game and to glean more knowledge from every possible resource they can. So uh, if there was anything that was common across them, I'd probably say it would be that. In terms of benefits of keeping these players in the in the game, what do you think the long-term benefits of having these individuals either working at the top end of football in terms of first teams or filtering your A down into academy football, etc.? What do you think the long-term benefits of that can be? Um, well, I think if if I go back right to the start of this role and when I joined the FA, and I'll ask you, I'll ask you a question, quiz question, Michael. Um, when was the last time an English manager won a trophy? And not an international level, so not the Euros or World Cups, obviously. I wouldn't even know that. <laughs> I wouldn't even know where to begin with that. Really difficult. Um, What's so the answer? Was, hey, I'll tell you, it was, it was 13 years ago now. It was Harry Redknapp at the FA Cup at Portsmouth. Okay. And that was the last English manager or coach who actually won a domestic trophy. Now, what, what we're trying to do and some of the strategy behind that is obviously we're trying to change that. We're trying to get English qualified coaches, but, you know, definitely trying to help our current and former internationals, as I alluded to, to try and stop that happening and, and, and to try and accomplish that. And Frank got very, very close um, over the last couple of years. So to have their sort of knowledge and experience and what they achieved in the game, is you know it's fantastic they've got that insatiable desire to be the best person they can be but not all of them want to go into senior management uh, most of them do to, to you know hand on heart you know that they're, they're used to competing at that level and they do want to go into to majority first team coaching and management some don't some are quite happy and they've got a passion for working in development they want to see young players um progress hopefully into first teams but you know even when younger footballers particularly in the professional game, get released and go on to have a, have a different career. They just want to be the best under 14 coach that can be the best head of coaching, the best academy manager. And to have these types of people who are quite easy to build connections with, you know, you, you grab a, a person who's had a distinguished playing career and you put them in a room of young kids, the, the, the jaw drops, you know, it's like, and to get those types of people on the grass with them and build connections with them, build relationships, you know, when we help these coaches develop that knowledge and experience so they can transform it and, and convey it to the players on the grass is not an easy process, as I mentioned, but it's so powerful. And, and to see that firsthand, it, it's almost palpable. So that to have these people stay in the game and encourage them to possibly come into coaching and management rather than the media i think you know the media is it's a fantastic tool and a lot of these coaches are continuing to do it and they will do even when they fall out of work but you know it's quite it's quite transparent that they've got a wealth of knowledge and when they're talking on match of the day sky bt whatever it could be they've got that in abundance and we want to keep that within the game you know the coaches continuing to help the players because if they become good coaches at whatever level, they're going to help improve the players. And I think that's that's the ultimate goal, really, to keep them in the game because of what they can do to the players because of their own experience. And when you're working with these players, where 
where do they go to kind of upskill their knowledge is there particular avenues you would send them down to go and improve themselves in like a what initially in a tech tech way because obviously if you say for example we're looking at Steven Gerrard Frank Lampard they've played you know for some of the best managers in, in the world they've won countless trophies um over over a substantial period of time they would have spoken to other players who have had great experiences with other coaches so where do they go to upskill themselves regarding certain areas or certain principles um it's it's not easy due to their own time constraints and you know to be clear you've got frank and and, and steven now who are both pro license holders they've completed every coaching qualification in the english game john terry at the moment is on his pro license and you've got another of, of, of other people bubbling underneath that. Um, I think the courses have developed um, an enormous amount, and I think they're in a really good position at the moment, particularly the UEFA A licence and the UEFA Pro licence. And we do, on every single block in virtually at the moment, uh, technical, tactical uh, scrutiny of teams, strategies, formations. We have a very good relationship with national teams, so we've always got input from national teams whether that's Gareth going right the way through to the youngest development coach at St George's Park. We have their input, the way the national teams play, the issues that they're facing internationally. Um, so we're getting a lot of content from the courses, which is helping and challenging them. I think the, the difficult balances for those coaches and managers that are in roles is something I mentioned before, that, that they're so busy. They've got so many uh, people, media, staff at the club who want a bit of them. It's finding that balance of, well, actually, I've got a few hours in the day where I can really focus on developing within this area of the game and constantly chipping away at them so they haven't got enough time in the day. We want, to, we, want to, we want them to be enthusiastic about the course and have ownership of their own journey. So we want them coming to us rather than we keep knocking at the door saying, come on, you've got to do this bit, you've got to do this bit. We want them doing the other. They're knocking at us saying, come on, I want to know more, I want to know more. And, to be fair, there's a lot of them that are doing it. Um, and for those people potentially in my programme that I'm working with, we you know we are quite unique. We have got those relationships with national teams. So we're doing a lot of stuff with the national coaches. We're doing some stuff with current managers and coaches within the game who will come on you know, quite bespoke uh, at the moment video calls. So we may have four or five coaches on a call post-game. Uh, post-international game where there's a particular trend or uh, problem that they face within the game and we try and talk about a solution and how they dealt with it pitch side. It may be, you know, not just technical, tactical. It may be, as we said, having difficult conversation, managing up. So we were quite fortunate over the week where we had a sporting director of a club on and spoke about the, the issues of the potentially trust dealing with the board, what do you do when you, uh, you know, so you can imagine some of these coaches, they've got very limited experience in the early stages of actually being in a boardroom, how to handle those conversations, speaking to a CEO, the owner, how do you want more money out of it? It's a transfer window. I, I want some more money to sign a player. Well, you can't have it. Or what are your strategies to get more money? What are you negotiating and influencing skills like? So, we, you know, they, they get an awful lot thrown at them. Um, and there are, you know, the methods and, 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 and you know opportunities for them to develop an upskill but it's that difficult balance i think between you know not giving them too much and making them want more 
do you think there's there's a case to making sure they surround themselves with the right people? Because from the outside looking in, I look at someone like Alex Ferguson and throughout his career, he kind of had different assistant managers that kind of came in and, and work with the group. Um, and obviously he had different coaches that would have come in during that time. And I could be wrong, this is just my personal belief, but I think that that kind of longevity for his career probably helped that he kept winning things. That's always going to be at the top level, going to be helpful. But also probably having a new voice and new ideas come in to keep the you know the players that have been there for a long time, your Ryan Gage, your Paul's goals, engaged with these new, new principles. Do you think that's important for people at the top end just to surround themselves with people that maybe are able to refresh or can challenge principles that you might have and, and whatnot? Yeah. You know, think about what you just said. You know, Sir Alex was very keen to evolve, wasn't he? You know, it seemed to be every two, three, four years, it, a new coach would come in, he'd get rid of a cluster of players, he'd bring new players in. And, uh, you know, we talk about evolving, but I think the moment you stand still and you think you've got it sorted, you, people will catch you up and they'll overtake you. You've got to be constantly thinking ahead. Um, I think to answer your question, yes. I think the more and more people I speak to in the game, particularly on reflection of those early roles, um, I remember, you know, we were quite fortunate to have Gareth Southgate on a call last year where he spoke quite candidly about his role at Middlesbrough uh, in, in those early days. And I think he's made this public knowledge of the fact he just finished his UA for B when he took over. He was a player the season before. Literally three months later, he was the first team manager. And he said he, he'd got um, a number of good people around him at that time that tried to help him. And I think that's invaluable because... You know, I'm not. I'm not necessarily saying you need a director of football or someone there who's been. It's you know, seen it, done it, got the t-shirt. But you need to have someone who's got experience of every aspect of the game, and they might not necessarily have been a success, but no doubt at some point, as I mentioned before, you're going to face difficult times. And even if you're not, I'm dealing with a lot of coaches on the on the flip side of that who are actually getting success and dare I say, potentially getting carried away with themselves because they've had a lot of success. Oh, I'm brilliant. I've got it solved. I've, we've won. I've got promotion. and Great. But co your coaching career is going to go on another 15, 20 years. You are going to get the sack. Ultimately, you are going to get the sack. If you want to go into first team coaching and management, there's only two ways you can go. You can keep going up or you, or you go, you get stale and you, you stagnate and you get the sack and everyone gets a sack. They just do. So unless you're the unique one or two. So to have those people around you who've got that experience, I think is absolutely vital. And I'd recommend anyone who's going into the game to have that sounding board, someone who has been there, uh, even if it's, you know, we, we work closely with mentors and some of the coaches I've mentioned have got mentors and will continue to have and evolve even the mentors because we want them to have people within the game, not just from within the game. So people from the, the world of business who could, who are good at strategizing and, um, are good at different aspects who can offer a different flavour and a different perspective but I think it's invaluable for, for people to have experienced people around them who can help develop and almost just offer you know their pearls of wisdom and, and advice at times. Yeah I, I did a podcast a little while ago with a, a gentleman called Kevin Bowring who um, is an eCash tutor, former university lecturer also was the first head coach of Welsh rugby and he describes this as a critical thinking partner um, and he, he's 
kind of renowned in the rugby circles in terms of um, being that person for a lot of people. So Stuart Lancaster used him as that. I know Toby Booth does as well. Just that that person who's got a lot of experience and is just able to kind of sound out ideas or allow you to project your thoughts and then maybe ask you questions to critique what you're doing. So I think it's a really interesting concept of having someone who's kind of outside the game to, to help you with that. In terms of uh, developing leadership skills, I think this is a big thing for people, any walk of life, really. If you're managing people, you want to be able to do it well. Is there any particular strategies you help people develop those skills? Because obviously some people is going to come particularly naturally. Others, it might be challenging for them to um, develop those skills. So is there any particular processes or strategies you have to support um, people in that? Um Oh, it's very, very difficult. You know, leadership's such a broad word and covers a lot of different things. Um, I think it helps if you've got an identity and you understand yourself first and foremost. I think that that is vital. Um, you know, people talk about having a vision, having targets, objectives, um, being accountable you know, developing people. There's a whole host of, of, of aspects to it. I, I've got no distinct strategy that I use. I, I just think more importantly, with some of the people who I'm talking to and respect within the game, they're now, first and foremost, they, they're talking about actually having an aspect and, and being able to portray that you care more than anything i think those connections with individuals and working in high performing environments before you even get to talking about performance management etc is you know actually can you can the people that you work with and lead and whether that's your pa whether that's your players whether that's people in other departments whether that's the head of media do they know that you actually care about them and you've got time for them and I think everyone I speak to, and I know I mentioned Gareth's name before, one of Gareth's big skills is his people skills, is his ability to connect and communicate with people. And I think that's vital in the modern game. You've got so many people who want a bit of you and you've got to understand yourself. But more importantly, you've got to be able to build those relationships with people because as much as you may be the best person on the grass, technically, tactically, you may have every formation, strategy, nuance of the game sorted. If a player or an individual or a member of staff is not having you, he's not going to perform. Um, and and I, I reflect on my time as a, as a player. As I said, I had more clubs than Jack Nicholas and so many managers. The first manager that actually asked me what, weekend I had how was my family how it was really bizarre and I can tell you it was John Ward who who managed me at Cheltenham Town who's now an LMA mentor actually and you know John's managed you know a high volume of games in the football league and I can remember I can remember the incident we were stretching it was warm up and he was how was your weekend Gins how's the family how's the wife how's the kids what get up to and I thought this is a bit bizarre it's a bit odd what what's he after do you know back then it was the drinking culture did he think I was out drinking boozing it up on a Saturday night but he genuinely cared about me and it wasn't rocket science. If you build those connections with people and you get their life right off the grass and they're happy off the grass, you've actually got a better chance of actually performing on the grass. And I think that's right. I think, you know, now I, I try and refer to, and, and I, I'm, I'm very keen on this and I try and think about it myself with all the players that I've worked with. 
if I walked down the street on a Saturday and I bumped into one of the players that I coach, would they actually come up to me and say, hello, how are you doing? Or would they run a country mile and hide? And I'd like to think it would be the former. And, and I may not be the best coach and I still continue may not to be the best coach. But what I'd like to think is, do you know what? He was a good person who tried his best for me and he tried to help me. Now, that's not to say that you can't have difficult conversations with people. You may have to move people on in football terms. You may have to drop people, sell them, release them. Of course, there's a lot of difficult scenarios that are going to, you know, um, or, you know, organically develop during that time. But the connections are huge, absolutely massive for me. And I think if you can work upon that in terms of your leadership skills, I think everything else will fall into place. And some of the strategies that I mentioned about, you know, leading other people, building upon your culture, your values, your personal beliefs, um, that will all fall into place. But I think that is the most important part of, of leadership for me. It brings up an interesting point in terms of how you support players and you're honest with them. I look at someone like the Jesse Lingard situation um, and I think that for a long period of time he was taking a, a bit of a battering on social media and, and, and from pundits and stuff. And I believe it's come out recently that he's had some troubles away from the pitch in terms of people being unwell and him having to support brothers and sisters and, and all that type of stuff. And I, I look to it to a degree and think Ollie's probably done quite a good job with him in terms of trying to support him and take him out of the limelight a little bit. And, you know, as a club, it seems like Man United have been a little bit protective of him. And I I'm sure that, that, you know, the other players probably see that. They probably see that element of caring that you mentioned about there. And it probably does affect how they feel about the manager as well. It affects how they you know, how they want to work for him. Um, in terms of your own experience, when when you were asked that question and you realised he, he wasn't after anything, what did that do for you, your performance or your mentality in that situation? Um, well, again, trying to be authentic as a coach and a manager, it, it, it wasn't a one-off. It wasn't an off-the-cuff, I've asked him, that's it, I've ticked that box. It was constantly, and I'm not saying it was every week, but um, it made you feel wanted, you know, made you feel special, um, probably made you grow 10 or 15%. And, you know, John, John had a very clever way about him, you know, even when you didn't perform, he, he was never, you know, people talk about, don't they, never get too high when things are going well and never get too low when they're not. And John was always stable. Um, if you didn't perform too well, his first question would be like, you know, don't worry about it. Anything I can help with, everything okay off the pitch, you need any help on a particular element of your game. You know, we'd still have some some firm, uh, difficult conversation and moments with you to say, you need to be better at that because at the moment your levels dropped, your forms dipped in this particular area of the game. And But he, 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 he had a way of feeling you, making you feel rather, I'm letting the manager down. And you always want to try and put that right. And I think if you can create that environment, um, I think it's fantastic. And don't get me wrong, you're always going to have some individual people who won't buy into that. Oh, I don't care. It's not for me. Or they won't get on with their manager full stop. Or, you know, and that's challenging because if you're not in the team and you're out of the team, you tend not to like the manager anyway because you're not being picked. So that, that that's not easy, you know, any stretch of the imagination. And 
you know, as, as a leader, stroke manager, whatever you want to call it, I think you give people an opportunity. And I, I, again, I'm, I'm stealing someone's quote here, which is Dan Ashworth and change the people or change the people. And I think when you look into that, as a leader and a manager, you go into a club and an environment, whether that's the staff or the players, and you want to give an opportunity to every single person to go with you on that journey. Whatever your values, your beliefs, your philosophy is, once you've tried to articulate that and you're putting that plan into the execution stage, I'd quite often say, listen, I want everyone with me. And you'll evaluate and assess those people along that journey, whether that's, as I mentioned, players or staff. And at some point, if people aren't buying into your ethos, your values, your beliefs, if people are causing problems in the dressing room, there does become a moment when you've got to change the people and you may have to get rid of them. Now, that's the same in any organisation, sport or business. People move on, they either look for new, new avenues themselves or unfortunately that's a conversation you're going to have to be, have with them. But I, I'm, I would be very much against going into a club and making you know, changes carte blanche because you want to. Well, I'll, I'll give everyone a chance, of course. That's, that's in my nature and my personality. Um, but I think that starts by building those connections, as, as I mentioned, and making, making people feel special and wanted. I suppose people can surprise you as well. What you might have thought you knew before you went into the club then might, you know, might be, might be different. I, I think back, it's relatively dramatised, but if you look at the All or Nothing documentary with, with Tottenham that just happened, Jose Mourinho, I'd imagine, going in was really excited to work with Deli Ali. <laughs> Seemed like, yeah. you know, he's the one player that he wanted to buy at Man United. Whereas I think at the moment for both of them, it is, it's a little bit of a nightmare. So I think that you can get surprises anyway. And I think that's a really interesting thing. Can you change the people to get on board with your vision, your ethos? And if you can't, then that awkward conversation might come. Um, in terms of study visits, I'd, I'd imagine you, in your current role and in your previous role with the, with the PFA, have had some um, incredible opportunities regarding that. Is there any that have particularly stood out from you, uh, I guess, in two contexts, in a sporting context, in terms of anything done there, but also I know we're, uh, the sport at the moment is trying to steal from businesses and um, the way that those works so is there anything uh, for, I guess one from each that particularly stood out for you in, in the study visit context um yes I, I've been yeah you're right I've been very very fortunate in in the last five or six years to, to undertake a number of study visits I think the one that stands out to me and probably because it was on my bucket list since a little kid you know I, most people want to be footballers don't they and I had that passion and desire as a young kid and um, it was on my bucket list to, to attend a World Cup final and I managed to achieve that in Russia. So two, 2018, when I was working with the PFA, we, the whole department went to the World Cup on various um, groups and stages of the games and you know, we produced a technical report off the back of it. But to attend the World Cup final... Um, well, I just as a football fan, as a football person, you know, spine tingling, goosebumps. It was it was phenomenal just to be there as a person. But you know, it, it, yeah, it's an extremely privileged position. Don't get me wrong, and I'm aware of that fact. But even my wife, I'll have a she has had a giggle in recent years. Oh, you're on a jolly up again, going around another study visit. But let me assure you, it's hard work. It's not easy. Uh, you you work in long hours. You got game plans to write up to send off you're studying games on the tv you're assessing data it's it's not an easy it's not an easy journey but it's it's 
I think it's I think they're invaluable, you know, for some of the stuff that the PFA have produced you know, over the last five years that I was there and they'll continue to do so. You know, some of the the internal um documents that, that we produce at the FA in terms of analysing uh teams and tournaments, it, it's fascinating. And so what would that process look like? So in terms of if you're going to uh, go to view a tournament, if you're going to view a game or go and study visit, what would that look like from, I guess, start to end? Oh, that's, that's, a, that's a long conversation. But OK, so I, the most recent tournament that I went to, which I, which I led a, a group on, we went to the Under-21 European Championships in Italy in 2019. And I led a group of coaches from the PFA and, you know, almost instantaneously phone call from Jim Hicks who was head of the PFA right we're going on three different study trips which was quite unique the PFA had never done that so it was the Women's World Cup in France it was the the European Championships in Italy and it was the Nations League in Portugal so the PFA coaching department approximately 12 or 13 pretty much divided into three this group's going to go there there and there and I headed up the group that went to Italy so okay fine well what are you going to look at because, you know, quite, you know, UEFA and FIFA produced technical reports, which are available to every single person online. But, you know, we always go with a specific focus. Um, you know, it's quite, you can go and analyse a team and, and a tournament and some of the data and statistics that come out of it are very, very generic, you know, possession, um, attempts on target, shots, top goal scorers. Okay, so we always try and do something a little bit different and offer a different slant, particularly for, F for PFA members. So all three of us tried to have uh, the three leads of the three tournaments tried to have a, a different focus. And we lent on trying to, A, focus on the England team and some England individual players. But B, trying to look at it from a different slant. So what we decided to do in the group that I, I looked at was we decided to look at um, a four-corner perspective from some of the players in the tournament. So before, once we knew the teams that had qualified, uh, we went out to interv interview a number of individuals who were in the tournament and tried to get an understanding of their journey to where they got to now. So I, to give you an example, I went to interview Tammy Abraham, who was obviously representing England and 21s on loan at Aston Villa at the time. I had probably about 90 minutes with him at the training ground and just spoke to him, let the camera roll and just recorded it and just spoke to him. So what age did you start playing? What position did you start playing? Did you play various positions? Who was your best coach? Why? What psychological characteristics has he got? What traits? What does he do now in terms of when he's facing tough times? Does he have anything to fall back on? Does he speak to anyone in the game? Technically, tactically, what's his strengths? Does he know his weaknesses? What attributes does he perceive the team think of him? What does the manager think of him? Socially, what's he like around the camp? Is he a, is he a night owl? Is he a gamer? Is he the life and soul of the party? Does he just sleep all the time? So we tried to get as much information across a number of different people and positions so it wasn't just generic um, and that went into the report. And then technically, um, we tried to break it down into um, areas of the pitch. So final third and defensive third. What did the teams really try and do in those two areas of the pitch to try and hurt the opposition and, protect their, and to protect their goal? So we always try and do something a little bit different. And that was the technical, tactical, you know, physical, psychological focus. 
but then you've got the logistics of the tournament <laughs> you know how long is the tournament can you take in every game why can't you take in every game Italy's such a big country you've got to look at the flights hotels journeys between games um tickets how do you even get tickets can you get tickets for every game do we go in them PFA branded tracksuits or England tracksuits because then you've got opposition fans are you going to get beaten up and you got to you know you you've got a whole host of issues to look at logistically and then tying in personnel you know do, do am I going to get on with my colleague does he want to work with me is he going to be happy to stay up till the early hours and you come back from a game that finishes at 11 o'clock you've got to drive back three hours then while it's fresh in the mind you're going to get some notes right down are you going to wake up have breakfast meetings um are you going to work through the day and then the two people stay there while you go to the next game and it, it it's quite a difficult process but it's it's exciting it's fascinating and when you're there in the thick of it it's it's brilliant it, it it's amazing um and it's not too bad when you can have some italian food and pasta as well that's that that's sort of you know and what, what was your big thing. What was your big takeaway from from that tournament? From Italy, um, it was extreme heat. Uh, so for the players, that was a condensed, you know, two weeks long. Well, actually, it was a week long for, for some of them. So England played three games in six days, seven days it was, um, 30 plus degrees. They had a base, but they travelled and... The actual um, physical capacity of the players was was really uh, challenging because they've just come off the back of a tough season anyway, all the players, not just England, and they've then got to perform in that heat and for to face that volume again in such a short period of time was, was, was really difficult. And that did then play a part in some of the strategies that went behind it because England, as you can imagine, were one of the fitter sides and they they had their own individual challenges in the game ad boothwood is really kind to share some of those challenges to to us and some of the coaches following on from that tournament but you know you you know we mentioned before about doing something different and you, you're, you're facing romania who absolutely were amazing in that tournament because they weren't by any stretch of the imagination favorites it's not even expected to get out of the group stage and the way it worked was there were there were three groups the winners of each group qualified plus the best second place team and Romania seemed to have an army of fans literally thousands of fans and in England under 21 tournament you know it was probably two or three thousand max at a game Romania probably had six thousand heartful you know vociferous uh, fans going to every single game and it made it like a home game and we were at the Romania-England game, which was a wild game, 4-2, I think it finished up, where five of the goals came in the last six minutes. It was just staggering, the game. But England, is, and AD admitted this, England has experienced as the players they had in the squad. They struggled. It was 35 degrees. It was They really had the pressure put upon them because it was, it was the, the second game in the tournament. They, they'd lost the first game, so they were under the cosh already. But the game, it, it, without being there, the, the Romanian fans were jumping, they were setting off flares, and the England players struggled to adapt A to the heat, A to the pressure, and B to the Romanians. And that game will stand out for me because, you know, a couple of individuals 
in that team. Uh, I particularly look at, you know, Dean Henderson, the goalkeeper, who, who should have done better with one or two moments. And you look at where he is now and they were just caught rabbits in headlights at times. They just couldn't put up with it. And, you know, again, we were privileged to some information that AD shared and AD did his best to pre-warn the players. It wasn't unexpected. They knew what they were going to face, but sometimes as much as you inform and educate the players, as soon as that whistle goes and they step over that white line, it, you know, it's up to them. And for whatever reason, they just didn't perform on that particular that particular occasion. I know it's a, it's a hot talking point in academy football at the moment, obviously before COVID, um, but about how you prepare players for that. Because I think if you talk to a lot of academy teams from under nines right the way through to under 23s, if you go to tournaments on the continent and then all of a sudden you have a load of fans there with the clackers and the um, drums and flares and stuff, it takes them a little while to get used to it. Um, and it's how can we better prepare or better expose the players to those environments so that it isn't, as you said, they're a rabbit in the headlights where they go, okay, I've done this before, I've been there before. I just think the culture is so different. You look at Europa Leagues and stuff when, you know, Red Star Belgrade, when teams go over there and it's the tight tunnels and the fans are jumping up and down. It makes it a real challenging environment. And I think it's something that if we could expose players to it more, would definitely benefit them. Um, but how you do that on a consistent basis on games that matter is challenging. I, I think you're right. And I think what coaches and clubs, uh, academies and even grassroots are doing, they're actually embracing those experiences. I think, you know, you take a group of under 12 players across, you know, it, even if you have a tournament in this country, it's brilliant. It's an opportunity to get players together, see how they socialise, interact, Coaches learn about players, players learn about coaches and managers and staff. And, you know, you spend that amount of time with each other, whether that's in this country or on the continent or beyond. That is difficult. Um, and that's why, you know, I, I was, A, very proud, as I'm sure everyone else was, with how England performed in the World Cup. But I think Gareth got the camp spot on, you know, in terms of, and again, I wasn't privileged to be part of that, but in terms of, relaxing it it wasn't strict it wasn't dare I say military as it was um mentioned that it may have been under that Fabio Capella area where they were treated like prisoners and you had to do this had to do that had to do that at certain times Gareth treated them as adults and I think whatever your age or experience if you're getting opportunities to go and play other teams other formations other players you're picking up a different language as you said and you mentioned about <laughs> the two lads at Hartbury you know all of a sudden, as a young player, if you're facing these different experiences and different challenges, eating different food in a hotel, sleeping in a different bed, it's brilliant. So I think the game itself needs to give itself a pat on the back because the more people are exposed and given those opportunities, wherever players' journey and pathways end up, it's helping them develop as players, but more importantly, as people as well, some of those life experiences. Yeah, something that I we've had conversations with and I this is just between coaches that I think would be a real of value to kids is when we have the, if you can organise tournaments between academies or people coming across and then if, and again, this would be a logistics nightmare, but if you could just open up the, the gates to in, invite people to come and watch, say we've got a certain number of spaces for, you know, grassroots kids, parents, fans to come and watch, but just come and have a look. 
I think it'd be a really interesting balance to see how the kids dealt with environment where there's a lot of people walking to and from their games and I'd liken it to kind of Wimbledon where you've got a series of pitches games on at different times but people can just drift from pitch to pitch um, and I think that'd be a really interesting aspect just to challenge the kids in different ways because we talk about challenges and whatnot and I think this is one that goes all the way through the pathway in terms of how do we replicate that pressure of playing in front of more people how do we expose them to that and as you said, an under-23s game might normally have 2,000 people. Well, what's it like if I'm going to go to Old Trafford in front of 60 or the Romanians are bringing an extra six, so all of a sudden it's 10 or 12,000? Um, so I think it's a really interesting dynamic on, on that front. Mm. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think, you know, we're trying to help players, you know, that that's ultimately what it's about, um, experience everything along that pathway because if they do become professional footballers, the, the lucky few that will, um, they will face everything in the game. And if they've got no experience of it at a younger age, it's it's going to be really difficult. You know, you think, I, I refer back to my son and I can remember, I think he was probably about under 10s and he played in a, in a local tournament and he missed a penalty in the shootout. Heartbroken, crestfallen, tears falling from his face. And that was a great learning experience for him because the emotional drama, and I can imagine how het up and nervous he must have been, but... You don't, you don't want to see that happen to any kid, but from a bizarre way you do, because that helps build and develop them. Um, and, as, you know, particularly we talk about international, you know, tournaments and experiences. How many times do you actually get the opportunity to take a penalty in a penalty shootout when you've got people clamoring and chanting and booing and hissing? And at the top end of the game, when that's where tournaments are won and lost, never known, never alone games. So, you know, in, even in grassroots tournaments, have a penalty shootout at the end of every tournament, at the end of every game, have a penalty shootout so kids get more experience of it. And at some point, if they do get an opportunity where they've got to rehearse and replicate that for real, at least they've done it a few times. Yeah, I've got bad experiences of that. I remember as a kid, <laughs> I met, it must have been probably five or six tournaments in a row. I missed a penalty that put my team out. And it got to a stage where I was like, I'm not taking penalties anymore. And to be fair, my dad was the coach at the time. Um, and he was like, you're going to keep taking them. It's like, it's not really an option. And then it got to the stage where I scored one, then I scored another one. And then I actually had a lot of confidence. I was like, oh yeah, I'll take one, it's fine. But in terms of a learning curve, you go from being distraught that you've let all your teammates and you've missed the penalty and whatnot. And so then obviously being more confident is resilience, particularly in kids, we can, we can support them with that. I know I cut you off earlier regarding your, your, your study visits. So in terms of, um, maybe business context in terms of what you've learned there were any particular standouts or highlights you've had in a business context that um really informed your thinking or challenged the way that you do stuff um it's it's difficult i think we, we, we you know we, with the development program we're doing and with some of the work across the courses you know it's got heavy football feel and a football focus is what we want and we are doing some work with other organizations some 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 businesses um and i think we did some some work with google and a lad called kirk vallis who's got a really fancy title head of creativity worldwide creativity by the way so what a, what a job he must have and i think he used a quote where and, and again you think about google and the environment that they must have and i think he used a quote where he was talking about individuals and trying to make them 
better. And again, that's why it related to me in, in particularly the football world. And, and the phrase that he used was, um, when a flower doesn't bloom, let me get this right, when a flower doesn't bloom, you fix the environment, not the flower. And I thought, that's pretty clever. Uh, and, and the way that I thought that and related that back, back to back to our context within the football world is, well, we always try and improve players and develop them. But sometimes, is it actually we need to have a, a good long look at the environment we're creating and we're not doing the best for the player? Um, you know, quite often within the game, we are taking a one-size-fits-all approach across coaching, across development. And that's something that we're, you know, and I'm definitely trying to do different with the international player-to-coach programme uh, and trying to give it a tailored, bespoke, individualised look. And are we actually doing that for some of our coaches? And I, I would challenge everyone right down to the grassroots to see. And, you know, even in terms of, you know, under eights, under nines, as soon as they start kicking a ball even beneath that, you know, we've got to be careful, but do we know what makes a player tick? Do we know what type of people they are? Do we know about the families? Do we know the gamers, the not gamers, the watch TV? And I look at the professional football environment and it still amazes me that a lot of the players do the same fitness programs. It's not individual position specific. A lot of the players do the same psychological programs if they have that support in the club. A lot of the players do the same S&C programme. I asked some coaches, some managers about, um, you know, do you know what type of learning? So to, to give you an example, I was at pre-lockdown. I went to watch an under-18 game and a coach uh, pulled a player over to the bench on the side of the pitch, gave him some information. The player went back out and I knew that player. And that player uh, had informed me that he absolutely hated the fact that he was getting pulled to the side by the coach because he felt embarrassed that he was getting pulled over and everyone else perceiving it as I'm the worst player on the pitch and he's got to give me some information and help me. And in fact, it wasn't that at all. He wanted the coach, the coach wanted the player to disseminate some information. And, you know, even in types of learning styles, are you visual, are you kinesthetic? Do you like one-to-one -one meetings? Do you want more stuff from your analyst sent to you? And actually, I don't want to know anything. I'm just wanting you to focus on the game. And I actually think, Coaches at all levels really need to, you know, delve a little bit deeper into are they actually trying to maximise the best possible opportunity they've got to work with that player? But to do that to the to the highest possible standards, they need to understand the player first and the person. So I guess on that context, I've got a question for you. Obviously, there's there's a big, I guess, um, movement at the moment in football, which is to allow players to kind of make decisions. Um, during games, etc., to allow them to explore and then we'll, we'll, we'll assist them. I think something that's come along with that is um, where coaches maybe at the time don't intervene during the game um, and they kind of just stay completely quiet or relatively quiet during the game. What are your thoughts around this, around that area? Ooh, uh, I'd love to see it. Uh, and some coaches, you know, again, everyone's personal and everyone's different. Um, I've got some experience of that and, and I'll share it with you. And it, it's quite interesting. So I went to visit a club uh, probably 12 months ago and I was working with a coach on his A licence and I was supporting him. And again, most club philosophies are we want to create independent decision makers and let the players 
um, solve the problems and find solutions on the pitch themselves. Printed all over the, the academy building, fine, no problem. And I'd worked with this coach for a, a number of months, actually. And funnily enough, we mentioned about a tournament. They, they held a mini tournament at the training ground and they played a number of games over one day. And I was doing some support and analysing his communication. So it was pretty much um, me videoing him. He was mic'd up. I was listening to him and how he spoke to the players. So was he giving out instructions? Was he asking questions? Was he giving praise? Was he giving criticism? And I was keeping a tally chart and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that was going to form part of my feedback at the end of the day. And on the games that they did well and the team performed well, there was probably um, still a 60 to 70% instruction method from the coach. So lots of instructions, lots of command style coaching from the side of the pitch. And on the one game that they lost, and potentially I flipped this to the coach, on the game that the players possibly needed help more than anything, the coach actually, in terms of quantity, said, 70% less than the games that they did well and in terms of instruction that flicked on its head and he criticised the players 80% of the time so as much as I would think that would be a good uh, strategy to have in terms of letting the coaches be quiet for periods of time for segments of the game whatever that may be I think it's really challenging for coaches and managers to do that because as much as we know academy football should be about development I think some coaches, not all, but some coaches have a real battle internally with those demons because they still want to win the game. And yes, it was as a, a tournament, but it was heavily, um, you know, sort of articulated that, listen, it's just it's just a tournament. We're not bothered about where we come. It's just development opportunity for the players. But the coach was still absolutely dead set on winning that tournament and performing well that he couldn't help himself. My, my I guess my questions around it, is that probably going back to players' learning styles. So some players, I, and it's, again, it's knowing the players, but will under, their understanding will improve by helping them in the situation. So say, for example, um, you've got a centre-back that isn't providing you with depth from throw-ins, and the first couple of times he gets the ball nicked off him, or he's, he has to clear longer because he's not provided enough depth which allowed him to be pressed. If on the third occasion you say, Timmy, just drop three or four yards, you'll give yourself more space, that, because it's in the environment, because it's in the situation, might support him better rather than being quiet for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, whatever that is. And then during a five-minute debrief, trying to run through a checkpoint of like 15 coaching points so I think it again I agree with you I don't think you need to tell people all the time I don't think you need to be instructional all the time but I think going back to your point regarding knowing your individuals sometimes you need to understand what your individual how they will learn best and that for them might be the environment where you can support them the most rather than doing it out of context where they struggle to visualize etc yeah no I totally agree with you I, I don't think there's anything wrong whatsoever knowing the individual 
if you need to give an instruction on to help that player there and then to try and solve a problem, great, do it. Um, I think, in all honesty, in recent years, I think coaches are probably less in favour of that. And I'm not quite sure whether some of the qualifications have confused and muddled people that uh, they want players to find the solutions themselves. But, you know, ultimately, I think players, they want to perform to their best ability. I would probably suggest longer term, the player needs to find out the solutions themselves rather than be told. Um, but that can be done through a plethora of different ways, through analysis, through a journey for the players watching themselves back, training, questions. But sometimes players just want to be told and individuals want to be told. And as soon as you get into that you know, senior end of professional football, you haven't got time to say, well, actually, it's a learning journey. We'll work. You've got to solve that problem instantaneously. And I think the only way you can solve a problem instantaneously is if you've got the knowledge and the skill set to be able to recognise the problem on the pitch and be how to stop that and how to, how to provide a solution to it. And if you can get that information onto the player pretty quickly in that results-based environment, it's going to be a help for you, surely. But the more and more coaches that I come across um, probably don't have an understanding of how to solve the problem. And that's why they don't intervene at the right time. I think, yeah, as you've said, it's it's important, you know, in the context of the players and then also knowing the context of the of the game. Um, and I, I think more often than not, they might need more support in a really challenging environment or something they're not used to. You, you come and look at uh, when Conte won the league with Chelsea, really unusual style of play, which no one would come up against. Um, in terms of that three at the back, people hadn't come up against it for many, many years. And maybe that would be a situation where you would need to support more. Obviously, I appreciate it's different at the top end, but I, I just think that it's that balance between how much do we support the players? How much do we allow them to have the decision making? And it should be a constant battle, not one, one side and we don't do any of the other. And equally, not I'm going to instruct all the time and not allow them to discover at any point. In terms of you, obviously, you've had quite a distinguished and long career, both as, as a player, um, and as a coach, coach developer, etc. Have you seen a change in in the society and in, in players that have come through the system and how they how coaches engage with players or how players like to be coached, etc.? Um, yeah, I think players nowadays, because of purely probably technology, they've they've got thirst for more. Um, you know, I think back to when I played, which was granted, you know, donkeys years ago. Um, you, you were trained, I'd say trained, because I wasn't coached until I actually turned professional. I looked back and it was just a coach putting on a session. He didn't coach me at all. You were trained, you finished, that was it. You went home, you know, that, that, that was all he did. And I think now because of the resources and the way that, you know, ECPP has been in, implemented over the recent years, you know that that sort of learning and education doesn't stop and i think the majority of players want that so you know you go in early now as a young player and you've got your snc you've got your prehab to do then you've got training you've got coaching then you've got analysis and then you you know whatever sort of college or or, or btec work or a levels they're doing then they're understanding about anatomy and physiology and the way the muscles work and it never stops and 
I think that's a challenge in itself as you know I sometimes have a lot of conversations with some of the coaches saying well when do we actually create and breed time for for kids to be kids you know I go into a lot of clubs and, and, and quite rightly so. Uh, it wasn't the case when I was a player where nutrition now is absolutely phenomenal. You know, how do you perform to, to your maximum? And I always use the analogy, which was taught to me, you know, you don't put diesel in a Formula One car. Well, absolutely right. You, you try and fuel your body to work to its maximum potential. And my first pre-match was honestly steak and chips at 12 o'clock on a Saturday. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and rightfully so, the game's evolved. But... You know, when do we allow kids to be kids? So when when our kids are 12, 14, 16, 18, well, go and have a burger and chips. We can't have a burger and chips. Well, why not? Life's also to be lived. You know, should players be drinking alcohol? No, of course not. Should kids be drinking alcohol? Of course not. Definitely not. But at some point when they're 18 and above, well, we want people to live a life. We want people to be happy. We want people to enjoy themselves. Now, that's not doing things to extreme. And I can remember back when I was a player at uh, Nottingham Forest and David Platt was a manager and due to his Italian uh, playing days, he'd, bought, he'd signed a couple of Italians and the lads were cracking open a bottle of red wine at lunchtime and having a glass. And we were all looking back going, what the bloody hell's going on here? They're having red wine at lunch. And okay, gra granted, it was a bit of a cultural thing, but they, you know, they don't do things to extreme. It was one glass of red, red wine. And in terms of the, the medical... Um, research that goes into that in terms of increasing blood flow and red and white blood cells increase you know it's like well actually there is some scientific research behind that that encourages you to have the occasional class and you know i look back and i'm having a conversation with my kid now who's nearly 17 and there are moments when they can let themselves and the hair down and you don't have to think about the game and go and watch tv and go and play on your xbox or do what you want to do because you know football at the top end is it's, you've got to immerse yourself in it to give yourself the best possible chance of being a footballer. But, you know, rightfully so in the last last few years in terms of, you know, mental health issues and players that fall and drop out of the game, you've made so many sacrifices, potentially those players who go, you step into academies that now, you know, there's some horror stories going around with some of the big clubs of when they're actually talking to players, you know. You could have made sacrifices pretty much from five, six, seven years old till seven, you know, 17, 18, 19 you're out of the game, you've lived like an absolute monk, disciplined life, and all of a sudden, you've never had a burger, you've never drank, you've never done this, you've never done that. Well, actually, you've got to be pretty balanced in your approach as a coach, and I think, uh, and as a football club, and yes, you've got to sacrifice some things, you've got to be disciplined, you've got to have the right approach, the right mentality, but come on, you know, life's there as well to be lived, so you've got to get a balance of the two for me. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting concept. I um, A little while ago, I was on a coach with the kids and they were all playing a game together on their phones. Um, and it was really nice. They were talking back and forth in between rounds and they were, you know, shouting back and forth. And I spoke to my colleague. I was like, this is one of those times where the safeguarding rules, like, I wish they were different. They're not, but I wish they were in terms of, it would have been great if the coaches could have gotten in, involved with that and shown like a human side of going, okay, what, what game are we playing? What have we all got to do? And, you know, you can have that laugh and a joke in the kid. I know obviously at the moment we're doing a lot of virtual sessions and I've informed my kids that for one of the sessions, we're all going to do fancy dress. Right. We're going to do just something. You've got to go like your oldest retro football kit or something like that. 
just because I think, as you said, it's really important to have that human fun side where they see that, yeah, we, we want to improve, we want to develop both, uh, more importantly, as a person, but and then obviously as a player. But there is also a time to be able to have a laugh and a joke and have that that connection. And I think that that goes all the way through the game. I think that, you know, as you alluded to earlier on, people at the top end are still people. They want to have that opportunity to have a laugh and a joke with their friends. And ultimately, in a first-team environment, you're going to have some really close mates in there and you're going to want to have a laugh and a joke with them. So how can the coach, you know, embrace that and and harness that so that there is a good team spirit and people want to go into training during the day? Yeah, I'm wholeheartedly in support of that. I think, um, you know, even at the top end and given the way the fixture is at the moment, the fixture is, you know, teams are playing Saturday midweek, Saturday midweek, and there's not a great deal of training going on. It's ticking over, it's recovery. And, you know, players spend more time away from the training ground than they do actually in the training ground. So, you know, what do we know about them? How do we make them feel happy? How do you build those connections? It's... It's, it's hugely important because as much as we want players to be focused about the game and what's coming next and everything else, well, actually, they do need to go home and switch off and spend time with the family, spend time with friends, and whether that's virtually as you know life is at the moment or not, because fingers crossed reality will come back and it will be normal you know, before we know it. But it's, um, it's a difficult balance to strike, and we always think players think about the game nonstop, and I think that's unhealthy. In all honesty, I think you need to have a different hobby, a different focus, um, because I just think it just helps you become more of a rounded person. Yeah, I, I did a podcast with Richard Elliott, which people can find um, on back catalogue. And he discusses the challenges kind of when new players come across to England and sign for a club. And he's quite close to Vincent Perigard. Um, who obviously played for Portsmouth and Stoke, etc. And he mentioned some of the challenges that players have. Um, and I think it's a real interesting push from clubs at the moment to try and support players better with that. I go back to, again, the All or Nothing documentary of Tottenham uh, with uh, Stephen Bergwin, who came across. They have an apartment block which they put new players in and it has, you know, one or two bedroom flats and stuff so that the families can come and stay with the player if they need to, but also so that the players can get lifts to and from training together. They can spend time playing video games or whatever it is together so that they don't feel completely isolated, which was one of the things that Vance on Pericard mentioned, that he basically came over, spoke no English, didn't really want to move to Portsmouth, was forced out of Juventus by a director who's in a place where he didn't know, couldn't speak the language, and wasn't seeing anyone, which I think anyone would struggle with. If you're somewhere, you know, you don't really want to be, it's no disrespect to Portsmouth, but Juventus is a massive, massive club. You know, it's, it's a real challenge. I think the work that everyone's trying to do in terms of allowing players to be happy off the pitch to then get them performing, etc., on the pitch is, is, is really, it's good to see because I think it's only going to help players in the long term, if not just for their mental health, which I think obviously is the most important thing. Um, listen, mo last question for me and something that I ask everyone, um, and this could be challenging with some of the work you've done, but who's the best coach or player you've worked with and why? With or against, sorry, with or against and why? So let's go through the best coach I've worked with and the best player I've played with. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, those two are fine. 
Okay. Oh. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to say the best player I've played with, I probably have to refer back to my sort of Nottingham Forest days, and I still I still find it difficult to pinpoint one. But the, my first year scholar apprentice, we had Roy Keane and Teddy Sheringham were there, but I can't count them because I actually didn't play with them. Um, I'd probably say you know I was quite fortunate. Stuart Pearce was there. Um, Stan Collymore was there and Pierre van Hooydonk were there which were probably the standouts for me in my time at Forest in terms of the top players um, you know Stuart Pearce he'd probably want to kill me about this but you know he'd struggle to do 10 kick-ups but in terms of what he could actually do on the pitch and the, the person the leadership you know he, he was brilliant obviously played a number of times for England but I'd find it really difficult to separate probably Stan Collymore and Pierre van Hooydonk in terms of the best players that, you know, single-handedly got Forest a promotion and then both held their own uh, within the Premier League and went on to have hugely successful careers elsewhere. So probably, probably those two were the standout players that I played with against... Well, I stepped foot on a Highbury. We Forest played Arsenal in the Premier League, which I was quite fortunate to come on. And I think they had Vieira and Petit midfield, Bergkamp was up front. And I think the moment I stepped on the pitch then, I was still a little bit, you know, dumbstruck in awe of, you know, we ended up losing 2-0. But, you know, Bergkamp and Vieira just to be on the same pitch as them was, you know, frightening, to be honest with you. I think I think the coach question is really difficult. Um just sort of, I never actually got coached for a number of years at Forest that I didn't. Um, I think the first coaches who really, who really made me sit up and take notice were um, Richard Money. I don't know if you can remember the name Richard Money, who went on to manage uh, a number of teams, actually, Warsaw, Scunthorpe, um, who managed across the continent in Europe. Richard Money was a, a fantastic coach, and a guy called Steve Beaglehole came in. Uh, who's now Leicester's under 23 head coach. Um, and they were the first times really at Forest as a young professional that I actually got coached and they were bloody good coaches. Um, they were the ones who really had the most impact upon me as a player. Um, and then possibly in my latter years, probably Keith Downey, who is now assistant coach at Bristol City to Dean Holder. Keith was John Ward's assistant at Cheltenham. And I think the two of John Ward and Keith worked brilliantly well together but Keith was a fantastic coach even all those years ago and rightfully so you know went on to have a number of roles at West Brom caretaker manager assistant manager to a couple of high profile managers um, and again another brilliant coach so they're probably the three best coaches that I've uh, I've definitely worked with um, as a player and when they were coaches and I'd probably say yeah probably unfair to say in my current role to be honest yeah no that's fine listen I mean, we've dropped some bombshells at the end there, which <clears throat> I'm sure if, if you're up for it, would be a great another podcast just to see the environment and those type of things. But for now, just to say, I really appreciate your time. Um, obviously, you're going to have quite a bit of time and really interesting to hear about the work that you're doing to try and get some of these really you know, successful players into the coaching world and what that journey looks like. So thanks very much for your time and hopefully catch up with, with you again soon. No problem. Thank you very much.
Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.